0: It's good to be in God's house, and I invite you to take your Bible, turn to the Book of Romans, chapter 2, verses 12 to 16, is where we'll be today. And I want to thank you for uh, all your cards and prayers. I had more cards in my box today. Uh, I appreciate the condolences. My sister uh, Marla died from ovarian cancer two days after Easter, but uh, she was a pastor's wife, a devout saint, uh, and uh, how appropriate for God to take her home. A glorious time of Easter, because we have the hope of what is yet to come. And I told my brother-in-law this week, Steve, a retired pastor, I said, I bet Marla would not want to come back now, uh, after she's seen what she has seen, uh, that God has waiting for us. And so, uh, thank you for your prayers. Uh, We travel Thursday morning at 3.30 a.m. to go to Spokane, um, and we will uh, come back a week from Tuesday, so I'll be out there from Thursday to Tuesday. The the service is on uh, Saturday afternoon at 2.00. Uh, and we're all pastors and pianists, all of us, uh, the whole family, Uh, and uh, my sister's request was that other pastors and friends would be the instrumentalists, the singers, the the speakers, because she wanted us to be ministered to, so uh, that's what we're going to be doing, so um, I appreciate your prayers for this weekend, Um, and I uh, also want to uh, direct your attention to the massive uh, dirt lot that we have over here, That is our building program. It's going awesomely, isn't it? Uh, We broke ground, I don't know, a couple months ago, and uh, anytime you build a building, you hit snags, uh, and we've hit snags, obstacles along the way, uh, whether it's uh, design issues that need to be modified, or uh, fire marshal has concerns, or just different obstacles that we've hit. That's normal uh, uh, when you... embark on an endeavor like that, Uh, so uh, don't hyperventilate and freak out. Yes, we are uh, going to be digging a giant hole there uh, in the next few months, Uh, and just be in prayer for your elders as we navigate the waters ahead. Be in prayer for uh, Intech, our architectural firm for the county, Uh, and just pray that God's will for them is speed. All right? And uh, you can pray for patience for us, too. I'm sure God will answer that one straight away. Uh, And and we have uh, you know if you don't believe in prayer just pray for patience it's it's an immediate answer um, we built the whole uh, uh, building program uh, for the church based on a baseball motif because I that was all I did when I grew up went into college to play ball um, that's my thing uh, and so heading for home was our last giving uh, uh, series that we did and I commend you for rising to the occasion and, and, and giving of tithes and offerings to enable us to do this but uh, as I know from playing baseball, baseball has tons of obstacles. Uh, my senior year a huge obstacle was a guy named Carl Moninger. Um, he was about 6'5", but on the mound he looked like Goliath. And he had perfect control, threw 90 miles an hour plus, had an awesome fast breaking curveball, uh, his changeup would leave you swinging 30 times at the ball as it approached the plate. Uh, and whenever we had to play uh, Carl, it was a huge obstacle. You had a couple options, you could step in the box, and then run for your life, or you could step in the box and go after the ball, or you could walk away from the box and tell the coach, I'm not batting against that. Um, But, um, and I learned a long time ago in playing sports, uh, you you look at obstacles, and what do you do? You you play through them. You play through them. And so we're having building obstacles, okay. Well, we pray through them, and we play through them, and one day God in his perfect timing will uh, allow us to continue on with our project. So be in prayer for us, all right? thank you for being interactive with me this morning so (laughs) it's cold out there again isn't it I just went out between services I'm like huh so we had one day of spring we need to pray about that so (laughs) let's pray God thank you uh, just for opportunity to be alive today uh, to enjoy health uh, to be among uh, believers uh, opening the scriptures to be taught of you Uh, help us to align ourselves with uh, your word not our word and if anyone among us doesn't know you might this become a day uh, that they decide to, that I want to trust and follow Christ this day. The best day of their life will be that moment. And we thank you for what awaits us in eternity, that indeed you do have a mansion uh, beyond recognition waiting for us. You, have the master carpenter, have built it, and we await uh, the day when we see you face-to-face, how awesome that time will be. And in the meantime, might our lives conform to what you desire from us for holiness in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I want to go into the Old Testament for a little bit as we set up for looking at chapter 2 what Paul says to the Jews that he's writing to in chapter 2 because what he's going to say to the Jews in chapter 2 of uh, Romans uh, is it's basically a spiritual problem that they've had for hundreds of years which leads to the premise which is a whole other sermon but some, some sins and family lines kind of hang on for generations uh, the problem with a uh, Uh, the Jewish uh, issue that Paul is going to address in chapter 2 of Romans is one uh, that uh, was clearly seen uh, as the kingdom began to implode I'm talking about the southern kingdom of the two tribes uh, as they began to implode from not being obedient to God's law uh, in his prophets Um, they were going to be invaded by the Babylonians in a series of invasions starting in around 605, 606 BC Uh, and prior to the invasion that God's going to discipline them through the hand of the Babylonians uh, he sends prophets to warn them, to call them back to following him. Notice what he says in uh, Jeremiah, says in chapter 7, concerning the spiritual deception of his people prior to invasion. He says in uh, verse 2, when you think about people coming to worship at the temple in Jerusalem, God says, uh, Jeremiah, here's what I want you to tell the worshipers that come to the temple. says, stand in the gate of the Lord's house, the temple, and proclaim there this word and say, quote, hear the word of the Lord, all you Judah who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Uh, that's the Hebrew word, Shabot for armies, the God of armies, angelic armies, the God of Israel. So to mend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place, do not trust in deceptive words, like what? Well, the prophets and the priests were given the the nation false words of comfort when invasion was nigh. What was the, the, the mantra? Well, they chanted this constantly, this is the temple of the Lord the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It's kind of a Trinitarian motif. Uh, They would quote this basically to someone like Jeremiah who said uh, judgment is nigh by saying, God will not judge this place, the temple's here. He certainly wouldn't attack himself. That's the deception. Verse 5, God says, For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, all the things they were doing, or do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin. And they brought the false gods even within the temple's precincts proper. Then God says, if you do those things, then I will let you dwell in this place and in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, God says, uh, then that's, that's emphatic in Hebrew. He says, behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. What your prophets and your priests and your politicians are telling you doesn't match reality. I'm going to judge you and discipline you because you've walked away from the word of God. Sound familiar? See, the the Jews in that day believed that God would not allow Jerusalem to fall. Why? One main thing was there, the temple. And God, through Jeremiah's pen, says, do not be deceived. Uh, When you you look at uh, the Old Testament, there's another time, years prior to this, that God told them the same thing. This time he told them uh, through the the life of King Saul. Uh, God had told King Saul, follow me, perfectly to the letter. Do not deviate. And Saul's going to modify his obedience to God. Samuel's then going to approach the king with these words in 1 Samuel 15. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? I mean, he's bringing all these sacrifices trying to cover the fact that he didn't totally obey God. He says, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. God could care less Saul about all your sacrifices he wants obedience without any waffling he says and to heed is more important than, than this than the fat of rams for rebellion is, is as a sin of divination Insubordination is, is iniquity and idolatry because you rejected the word of the Lord like modified it and only abated it like as much as you wanted to the Lord has rejected you from being the king There's consequences to disobedience. See, Israel had this uh, sin in their culture for many, many years. Saul did it, the nation did it. As goes the leader, so goes the people. A fish rots from the head down. You understand this? And this is what happened. And so, Paul, fast forward to Paul's day, uh, some 600 years later, when he's writing his letter to the Romans, uh, there's a Jewish contingent in the the church, he's writing to the Jewish contingent in chapter 2, he's preparing to come to them to teach and and minister among them, and he's writing the Roman letter to them to introduce himself and his teachings to them, and he's talking, as we saw in chapter 1, about the glory of the gospel of the Messiah, the Messiah, Jesus. And he's, he's been talking about them. And the whole first chapter is about the Gentile, basically the Gentile problem with sin. And he's been waxing eloquent about the Gentile world of sin. And every Jew listening to him, I'm sure, was high-fiving Paul, going, go get them. It's exactly how Gentiles are. Because remember, if we, we have to review because it's been several weeks, so I'm assuming a few brain cells have died. And you need to be brought back up to speed, right? What in the world were we talking about back then? We were talking about uh, Romans 1.18 where Paul says, every man's born with a concept that God exists. In fact, he says in Romans 1.18 and following, you can look at the, the cosmological argument and understand Trinitarianism. That's what he says. He says, they can see the Godhead. How so? From complexity must be one who's more complex than the complexity. God Uh, And what kind of God would that be? Well, a monotheistic version of God that you can define to a point, but then it's beyond your ability to understand it with a finite mind. That's what he's talking about in chapter 1. They suppress the truth of God's uh, existence. And because they do that, they become a law unto themselves. And because they do that, well, then they have all kinds of moral issues that he says degenerate down to the conscience dies. Well, that whole spiral of sin that Paul described in chapter 1 was the one the Jews would look at and go, well, that's certainly not us. Well, Paul then turns to them in chapter 2 and says, oh, you're moralist. You're a religious moralist. You think that you're clean before God? Let me address you because your sin is, is dangerous. So he's going to respond to them uh, in in a powerful way in the first 16 verses, and we'll finish it up. There's more than just the first 16, but this little motif right here is God responding through the pen of Paul to the Jewish moralist. That's the context. But what he's going to say to a Jewish moralist is going to apply to anybody who thinks, I'm going to get into heaven because my mother was religious. I've got religious books in my, you see what I mean? When I was... I'm serious. I've heard all these things. When I was a sheriff chaplain, I didn't share this in the other services. We have more time. Um, <laughs> when I was a sheriff chaplain, they called me to, to do a funeral for the sheriff's department. So I went to the house, interviewed the, the, the wife of the deceased, and, and I said, you know, um, you know, tell me about your husband. So she's, and I, like like what? what? What words would describe him? Adjectives, what? So she's describing him, and, and, uh, and, uh, and she said, uh, and you know, you know, you know, chaplain, he was a godly, godly man oh really how did you know that well yeah he he had a bible <laughs> neato <laughs> uh, it's a greek word uh, uh, can i can i see his bible she goes oh yeah absolutely so she goes and gets it and she hands it to me i think i cracked it open for the first time <laughs> nothing in it not even a i mean not even a bookmark not a pencil underlined him nothing and i'm beginning to look at this listen to her and i'm thinking really because if he was a godly man what would he be doing reading. he'd be reading the word of god go back to my sermon what was i talking about um you can say say i've got a bible and therefore i'm going to heaven because i got a bible no you're not no you're not see you can be the religious moralist and wind up not ever seeing god and, and that's what paul's trying to warn the the moralistic jew who believes that they're going to heaven because well i'm a jew I'm a Jew. And Liz's fat side of the family, this is their argument. I mean, I've sat down with them from New York, and we've talked theology. Those are, we're Jewish. Okay. what do you do with the Messiah? I mean, Jesus, you know, what do you do with him? Uh, and so Paul, who understands who the Messiah is, is trying to wake up his Jewish brethren. So he's going to give you the answers of what God says to that Jewish moralist. Uh, and we'll review. We're still reviewing. I'll eventually get to my sermon. Hang on. Verse 1, what did he say? Well, God says, uh, I I need to supply the reason for divine judgment. If you think the Gentile world is evil, don't think that the Jewish world cannot be evil as well. There's reasons why God comes in judgment, and sometimes the sins are internal, and because you're not doing the external thing, you're thinking you're okay. You're not. Then he he tells the Jewish moralists in verses 2 to 4 that when God comes in judgment, his judgment is always right because he has the facts. He never misses anything because he's omniscient. And then it says in verses 5 to 11 that uh, there's a road of divine judgment. The road terminates with you have a vault. I mean you as a person. God, he's what he says. You have like a vault. And every time when you've rejected Christ as your Lord, you live as a law unto yourself. When you sin, you make a deposit in said vault. On the day God judges you, what's he do? He's just. He says we need to consider their vault. What's in it? Well, Paul talks the vault of wrath. So that when he judges you, it's based on the facts of your deposits, which leave you standing uh, before God guilty. Better option, I would tell you, right up front is just come to Christ. But anyway, Paul's going to uh, talk to the Jewish moralist in the verses uh, 12 to 16 and add the next dimension, that God supplies the reality of the divine judgment. I mean, it, it's going it, to be real, and here's how it's going to be real, how God's going to go about judging people. It says in verse 12, he says, for all of who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. That's a Gentile. The law here is substitute the word Torah. So it, it, Gentiles don't have the Torah. They'll still be judged. Then he says, all who have sinned under the law, i.e. the Jew who has the Torah, will be judged by the law or the Torah. Then think about the Torah for just a minute. How many big commandments are there? It's test time. There's not nine. There's not 11. Yeah. Now you're cheating. Okay, there's 10. The 10 big commandments, Okay. And then beyond that, there are 613 additional ones. So just park that in your brain for just a minute. So if you want, if you want to reject the Christ, how will you, will you be judged before the living God in eternity? Based upon your obedience, or lack thereof, to 600 and... Excellent mathematics, excellent. Let X equal, and you can figure it out. Um, 623 commandments? Who's going to fulfill all those? Only one Jew ever did. Only one man ever did. His name, Jesus. Anyway, we'll get back to him in just a minute. It says, for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, the Torah, do instinctively the things of the Torah, the law, these not having the law, the Torah, are a law to themselves. So the Gentiles have their own laws. It's just not the Torah. But it, it's similar to the Torah. It says, in that they show the work of the law, the Torah, written where? Not on a scroll, but where? In their heart. In their heart. Uh, they are a law unto themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness. Notice the present tense nature of the participle. It bears witness to this constantly, uh, and their thoughts alternatively, accusing or else defending them. You know, your little conscience that comes along and says, you shouldn't do that. You should do this. And you're like, no, I'm going to do this, etc. cetera. Your conscience then condemns you. Uh, he says, on that day, when history terminates, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets, the things that you held, held away from everybody else. He'll judge the secrets of man through Jesus Christ. Judgment day's coming. Are you ready for judgment day? You'll be judged in two ways, either based on the law, internal law or external law, or you have the righteousness of Christ because you came to Christ in faith. I mean, it's your choice. And I pray that you would choose the, the latter. So Paul's trying to wake up those who are spiritually deceived, the, the Jews who thought, well, I'm getting into heaven because I'm a Jew and I have the Torah. And he says, not so. And to any Gentile standing there going, hey, Paul, I'm kind of thinking God gave the Gentiles a leg up on heaven by giving them the law. I mean, what do we have? Paul says, uh, not so. You have the own law. It's written in your heart. So no Gentile could sit there and say, well, I deserve heaven uh, because uh, I had no idea what God wanted from me. So I just did the best I could. No, that won't work. And any Jews sitting there reading what Paul's writing, they, they would, contempt, you could argue, well, I, I deserve heaven because, number one, I'm a Jew, and number two, I have the Torah. Therefore, God should let me in. And Paul's going to say, uh, that's not how you get justified. Uh, how does God judge Gentiles when he didn't give them the law? I mean, is that fair? I mean, if God didn't give the Gentiles uh, the law, special revelation on Mount Sinai, I mean, how is it fair that he would then judge you in eternity uh, with eternal punishment? when I mean, you, he didn't explicitly tell you. Well, Paul says uh, Gentiles just as culpable, just as the Jew. He, he just has the moral law, natural law, encoded from the very beginning. So does the Jew, but God gave them the special revelation. They're really responsible. No, skip verse 13. We'll come back to it in a minute. Look at verse 14. Paul says, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, these Gentiles, not having the law, they're a lot of themselves. And what in the world is he talking about? That you instinctively know right from wrong. This is called natural law. It's called moral law. It's built into the fabric of the cosmos. Everybody just knows. There are certain things you don't do, like stealing, murder, lying, only three. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we could have a whole sermon series on, you know, just natural law, the things that are wrong. But just things that we know, right? Things that he says, we know these things instinctively. The Gentiles know. That, like I said, that toranic law is written on their heart. They know it. C.S. Lewis was a devout atheist. as a young man. He loved to trash Christians. And his, uh, his grenade, I mean, the way he blew them away was the whole concept of evil, you know, when I, when I uh, started my doctoral program, and by the way, I finished my last correction on my dissertation Tuesday. Praise God, I'm done. So, yeah, woo. I sit around at night looking at Liz going, got nothing to do. You know, so we've gone shopping a whole bunch of times because I love to shop. But anyway, um, <laughs> and I actually stacked up a whole bu- bunch of books yesterday in my office and said, I can actually pick what I want to read. It's awesome. I know it's weird, but it's just me. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the first class I took with Dr. Geisler two and a half years ago for the doctor program was a class called On Evil, The Problem of Evil. Because people like C.S. Lewis would use these as grenades. Here's kind of how the argument goes. You know, if there is a God, you know, and he's a good God, then why would he permit evil? Therefore, since evil exists, the summation of the syllogistic argument is there's no God. There's no God. Well, let, read in Mere Christianity and analyze what C.S. Lewis, the devout atheist, had to say when he had a come-to-Jesus moment. So I was ordained Southern Baptist, sorry. Um, <laughs> he says, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But then I, I, I started wondering, how did I get this idea of, of just and unjust? A man does not call the line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. Isn't that the truth? Now, I, I am not laissez faire. I'm the antithesis of laissez faire. So I'm type A, like AA. So, like when my neighbor the other day put in a mailbox that was crooked already, and he, he went, I'm just saying, wanted to straighten a mailbox. He didn't use a level. What's a level for? Make straight. And you can eyeball it, and guess what? You got something with your eyes, because it's not straight. You can step back and go, that's straight. You put a level on it, it's like it's not, the bubble's not, uh-uh. Nah. And, and so when I had a neighbor, you know, on my street put in a mailbox to try to straighten it the other day, and I'm, I'm like, i looking at it going, oh, man, I, I don't even know if I can handle this. You know, <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, you know, and if I walked across the street with a four-foot level, I mean, that's the end of the friendship, you know. And I was like, hey, could we talk? You know, like, what's the level for it? Well, it's kind of eyeballing. That's kind of crooked. But, uh, you know, you, he says you can't know something's, something's crooked unless it, you know what straight is. Then he says, what, "What was I comparing this univer what I was, what was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, even my argument against God collapsed too, for the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply." that it did not happen to please my private fancies. He then says, thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely the idea of justice, was full of sense. Where'd that come from? He says, consequently, atheism turns out, he's an atheist, used to be. Uh, he says, consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. Whoa, whoa. He says, if the whole universe has no meaning, we should have never found out that it had no meaning. (laughs) Don't you like C.S. Lewis? He's just kind of like, I want to underline that and memorize that. Yeah, how did you know it didn't have any meaning? I can only measure it against God who has ultimate meaning. So if you know his life, what happened to him? He became a a believer. Why? Logical reasoning based on the facts. He understood sin. How do you understand sin? Ultimate measure, God Now, in case you're like in the legal area of the world, which is a lot of people in our uh, culture here, I'll give you a syllogistic argument. Moral law argument. This is a syllogistic argument. It can be no better than the components of said syllogism, correct? So let's look at major premise number one. What's it say? What does it say? Every moral moral law has a moral law giver, right? You walk into the Supreme Court and go, hey, where'd you guys get all these laws? I don't know, man, just kind of, they were there. Yeah, right. Okay, moral law, you know, okay, second m- minor premise leads to, well, there is objective moral law. We can't get around that, because it's a subjective moral law. We got issues. You can never get a traffic ticket. I'm kind of feeling it's 85 and a 25. Anyway, minor premise, okay? <laughs> logical conclusion, try that when you get a ticket. Uh, logical conclusion is what? There must be an objective moral law giver, i.e., God. This is, this is what Lewis is really talking about. You know, th- those people that go to universities, uh, young people, and write home or call home or text home or whatever they do today to say, hey, dear mom and dad, having an awesome time. I'm thinking of throwing Christianity to the wind because I'm buying into all of the evolutionary thinking uh, that I'm being told here, and I think it's viable. Really? Is that the logical viewpoint? No. No. Why? Because you can't, under the concept of moral law, explain where it came from from a scientific perspective. It's a metaphysical problem for those people. Yeah, There's a man named Paul Copin. I was reading him for another doctoral class I took the other day. Uh, he wrote this uh, defense of the concept of moral law. It's an amazing article. I'll just summarize what he says in this for those who want to believe in atheism. Because if you're an atheist, like, like Lewis said, where does your concept of morality really come from? Uh, The best option, I'm going to say, is theism. Here's what uh, Paul Copan says. He says, the affirmation of human dignity, rights, and duties is something we would readily expect if God exists, but not if humans have emerged from valueless, mindless processes. says, the naturalist context of a series of impersonal, valueless causes and effects producing valuable beings is shocking and utterly incongruous given the outcome. He says, if intrinsic value does not exist from the outset, I'm in evolutionary thinking, uh, its emergence from non-valuable processes is difficult to explain. No kidding. It doesn't matter how many non-personal, non-valuable components we happen to stack up. From valuelessness comes valuelessness, not value. In the case of morality, we're still left wondering how value and obligation came to be thrust upon a, value, uh, a valueless context of unguided matter in motion to have a context for the truth that murder's wrong. Where'd that come from? Well, it was just a valueless primordial sea of this and that, and, and out popped on the other end, eons later, that certain things were just wrong. Really? That's the best answer? No, I think the best answer is theism. There is a God who has set the standard of what is absolutely true and not true, and we are moral because we understand he's the ultimate of morals. You know, Dr. Geiser gave us one day in class uh, eight reasons why uh, moral law is just kind of there. And I'll give them to you. I'll summarize them. Uh, number one, we know it's there because moral law is undeniable. We know it's there. We know it's there. Now, you might be saying, yeah, cultures do things differently, and, and there's not absolute morals. Well, the, the minute you say there's not absolute morals, you made a moral... Absolute statement, so therefore I rest my case. But anyway, um, do I need to say that again? Okay. The minute you say there is not moral absolutes, that's an absolute statement. You absolutely prove my position. You follow? And, and, and this is what Geiser says. Moral law is undeniable. You can't get around it. It's around there. And it, it's absolute in, it, in its being there. Number two, he says we know it by our reactions that there's moral law. That... Go to the DMV and wait in a long line. You know what I mean? Then you're standing there and there's 6,000 people in front of you and somebody steps in front of you in line. How do you feel? What do you do? Tap them on the shoulder? Praise God for you. <laughs> you grab the shirt collar and throw them out of line? I've done that before when I was younger. Not a good option. Uh, but something bad's happened, you know? Why? Because it's moral law. So you just tap them on the shoulder. Hi, buddy. I believe in moral law. There's absolutes. You're out of here, dude. You know. (laughs) Number three. You believe in moral law? Why? It's the basis of human rights. Translated, you couldn't have a human right, an alienable human right, unless it's measured against God. Four. uh, It exists because it's the unchanging standard of justice, meaning you wouldn't know what is justice unless you knew one who's absolutely just. Five. It defines the real difference between moral positions. Ask the question. What's the difference between an ISIS warrior and a US soldier? <laughs> are they the same? N- are they the same? No. no, diametrically opposed, are they not? Because what does this one not have? Morals. Morals. What's he gonna do with a prisoner? Kill him? Kill him. Torture. Torture him? Whatever. What are they gonna do with him? Treating with respect, dignity, care, compassion, court of law, whatever. I mean, the whole situation's different. You wouldn't even know the difference between those if you didn't know the God of absolute morality. What do you do in battle and not do in battle? Well, thank God we have a nation that Judeo-Christian concept that understands how to treat people even if it's your enemy. But they don't have that concept. You wouldn't know the difference if you didn't know there was a God. He says, since we know what's absolutely wrong, there must be an absolute moral standard of rightness. True. Seven, moral law is the grounds for political and social dissent. Absolutely. I would love to, like, walk through a crowd of demonstrators, whatever they're demonstrating, anti-gun, pro-gun, pro-this, pro whatever. And I would like to ask them some questions like, do you believe in absolute moral law? Because I have a hunch knowing my culture The majority of them are going to say, hey, no, man, I'm relativist in law, moral law. It's just like what I do is what I do. And what you do is what you do. Why are you demonstrating? You follow? Because you couldn't demonstrate unless you have an absolute standard of why you demonstrate. Anyway. And then lastly, he says, if there's no moral law, then why would we make excuses for violating it? When I was, (laughs) this is a funny one. I mean, when I was a sheriff chaplain, I mean, I heard from all the 1,300 officers, like, what would happen on traffic stops? You you get pulled over, the window goes down. You don't want to say two eggs over easy, with you know, and that doesn't go well. I had a friend do that. You don't want to do that. (laughs) I actually had a friend that did that, it did go well for him. Um, You get pulled over, people are coming up with all kinds of excuses. Hey, officer, I, you know, a bee flew in. Really? Your windows are up. Well, you know sneaky little things aren't they uh you know my team just lost i was having a heartbreak moment i mean, something all these lame excuses all of a sudden you believe in moral law when the officer approaches the car you know you're making all kinds of excuses you just broke the moral law and you know in case you don't believe it eh, eh, those are eight points why moral laws there Geisler adds a ninth one oh, those are his eight paul adds a ninth one it's called verse 14 your conscience you've got one have you listened to it lately y- you have one did, did you like Jiminy Cricket? Remember him? Jiminy Cricket. What's he got to do with theology? This guy's all over the map. <laughs> Let your conscience what? Be your guide. Is that a good way to live life? Well, if you have a stained moral conscience from sin, well, the conscience can, well, tell you to do some really bad things if it's not a good conscience. But we all have a conscience. That's what Paul says. We're all born with it. And what's the conscience do? Does the conscience create law, moral law? No. It just tells you, Hello. You shouldn't be doing an 85 and a 25, but it feels so good. No, you you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. See, the, the, that's the little voice come along and telling you. It's the conscience. Where's the conscience come from? God put it there. You should do this. You should not do that. And then after you commit something that you shouldn't do, it's there to convince convict you uh i took nathan with liz uh he works for the fcc now they hired so many uh, special needs people to work for the fcc so he has a job downtown so he takes the vre downtown every morning gets up at four to go to work and he's enjoying his job but he went with a little buddy and his mom to new york this weekend so we're finally it's quiet at my house Uh, i told him i was going to sell the house while he's gone but uh, (laughs) he's like whoa Uh, you got a kid with your kids occasionally but um we told him We'll be there for you when you get back. So he taught us how to ride the VRE. We've never done it. Liz and I dropped him off down there. Got in the bus station, at Union Station. We hung around DC all afternoon. Got back on the VRE. I've never ridden it before, right? I don't know the rules. Train pulls up. I see an empty car. We walk on. We want to sit upstairs. And Liz gets a seat. I get a seat. We sit down and it's totally quiet and relaxing, kinda of chilling. It's kind of nice. And um all of a sudden, some lady across the aisle, you know, the expanse, you know, she goes, Pastor Marty and Liz! you kidding me! The church is everywhere. It's unbelievable. And yes, hey, how are you? It's great, fantastic. And we're talking and sharing, and it's really loud and everything. All of a sudden, I, I feel like somebody's yelling at me. So I, I look down below, and there's this big burly dude, shaved head, earphones. He pulls them out. Hey, buddy! Like, hey, yeah, what? I thought it was another prisoner. But it wasn't. He's like, do you realize that this is a quiet car? <laughs> no, no, no. Do you realize you're talking too? Uh, I didn't say that. This is a quiet voice. Yeah. So then, you know, the sinful side wants to step in. I said, thank you for being here to tell me what I'm supposed to do. And he sat back down, put his earphones in. Now, had I read the doors when I came in, because <laughs> I just blew by them. Empty car, we're the first in. If you read the doors of the quiet car? Have you? What does it say? quiet car no talking no loud music no cell phone talking i mean i didn't read any of the ten commandments of the quiet car (laughs) right now had i read them and known them as i'm sitting there and the prisoner goes psycho over there i I could have (laughs) been the conscience would have kicked in and had we began talking the conscience would have kicked in and told me what don't do that it's against the law the conscience we've all got one You got one? Paul says we know there's moral law because we have a conscience that tells us there's moral law. So then what's the upshot of that? Verse 13. For it's not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Is Paul saying, well, is he saying that you get into heaven based on your obedience to the law? No. He's setting up a theoretical situation. He goes, oh, you're a Jew and you want to get into heaven based upon obedience? Well, then it's got to be total obedience to the law. All of it. All of the time, no deviation ever. Perfect. And if you're a Gentile and you want to get into heaven based upon the law, you want to be justified before God, we have our sin problem just like the Jew does, and you'll have to be just as obedient to the internal moral law as they will be to the Torah. And since that can't ever happen, in chapter 3 he's going to tell you you need to turn to Jesus who fulfilled the law. But in verse 16 he says uh, you need to wake up. Why? One day when according to my gospel God will judge what? the secrets of men through who? Through Christ Jesus. Like all the things that you did that nobody else knew about, that you thought you got away with. I mean, all those conflicts in your conscience that you didn't listen to the good voice, you didn't do the evil voice, all those compromises, God says, let's put them on view. If your life's not covered by the blood of Christ, then it's just you as the law. Here's the facts. So that when you step into eternity without God and are punished, it's totally just and impartial. It's based upon all the evidence far better to come to christ isn't it why well he was the ultimate jew the god man who bore my sin bore your sin fulfilled the law to the letter never sinned went to the cross rose the third day and what's he doing he's calling out to people in a spiritual stupor telling them you need to wake up and come to me and he'll redeem let's pray father god thank you for the opportunity to open the words of paul Uh, what a great saint Uh, articulate thinker was he Uh, might our thinking match Paul's thinking might uh, his passion for the cross for the empty tomb be our passion and anyone among us that plays games with eternity might this be the day that they come and talk to a counselor afterward and say I want I want to know Christ today You will stand ready as the good shepherd to bring the sheep home. Thank you for your love for us, and we love you back. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful, sunny spring day.